Howdy diddly doodly to you, my good folks, and how is everyone? Yes, it's moi, Monsieur Andrew Roberts, here again to smother you all in debauched filth from the disgustingly obscene video nasty scandal, which was single-handedly responsible for loads of people's jail time, fines, and general emotional distress. It's that time of year, people. I'm sure most people have got their Christmas decorations up by now, and there's loads of festive activities. Some of the things you may want to do this Christmas are go to a Grand Guignol-type theatre and see people be killed for real, or maybe just make some snuff tapes as revenge for being jailed. No, actually, don't do any of those things, because they've actually already been done in this week's films. We're covering two torture films on this cold December day from the grungy decade of the 70s, Bloodsucking Freaks and Last House on Dead End Street. So before we get on to them, let's talk about torture in horror films in general. Not necessarily its own genre, torture films are a bit of a niche within the much larger splatter film umbrella. Now, splatter has origins in the French Grand Guignol theatre movement, which sought to depict realistic details of injuries and gore as a form of entertainment. At around the same time, French playwright Antonin Artaud devised his theatre of cruelty drama method, which sought to use shocking and cruel imagery as a way to force the audience to see the lack of morals and the wickedness of real life. Some of D.H. Lawrence's work also contained graphic scenes of injury, but it wasn't until the late 50s and 60s when the mainstream would become peppered with splatter. Hitchcock's Psycho was first categorised as splatter at the time, while Japanese movie Jigoku featured particularly graphic scenes for such an early film. It was Herschel Gordon Lewis's video nasty Blood Feast, however, that kicked off the first true appearance of strong gore for entertainment in film in 1963, featuring such gruesome ends as women having their legs hacked off, brains removed from the skull, tongues ripped out... Splatter eventually gained traction in the 70s with further films from Lewis, the films that we're covering today, and even the rapidly emerging Mondo genre, which capitalised on the depiction of unsimulated graphic violence for entertainment purposes. A couple of these, namely Faces of Death and Brutes and Savages, all got tied up in the nasty's moral panic. Splatter would gain even more popularity in the 80s and 90s. Fulci's films, heavily inspired by the Grand Guignol and Arto's Theatre of Cruelty, featured particularly brutal gore scenes that bordered on the abstract. A few of these became nasties too, like The Beyond and House by the Cemetery. There was also Bad Taste and Brain Dead from Peter Jackson, there was the guinea pig films from Japan, and in modern times, of course, we have the torture porn genre. Now this is essentially a splatter-slash-torture film with a massively increased budget, allowing for much more intense, uncomfortable focus on the sadism. Films like Hostel, Saw, Human Centipede, and even French New Wave films like Martyrs and Inside are all of this type of torture-focused subgenre. The two films this week, however, are from the 70s, so they're almost prototypes of the torture films that we have now. But because they're so cheaply made, they're obviously going to be quite different animals from Hostel or Saw. So let's begin our journey of terror with 1976's Bloodsucking Freaks.
Magician Sardou puts on an elaborate stage show in his theatre of the macabre, which seems to show gruesome mutilations and tortures to an audience. Critic Greasy Silo is sceptical of the performance, while footballer Tom Maverick and his girlfriend Natasha seem to enjoy it. Backstage, however, it's revealed that the actresses are brutally mistreated, locked in cages and forced to serve as Sardou's slaves, sometimes even shipped off around the world in a profitable white slavery ring. It's also revealed that the elaborate stage show is actually all for real. Sardou has his dwarf assistant, Ralphus, kidnap Greasy Silo as revenge for rubbishing the show, and also Natasha in order to utilise her in one of his future shows. Sardou's attempts to force Natasha into dancing in his show fail, and result in her falling ill. He calls in a corrupt doctor to heal her, and rewards him by allowing him to perform surgery on one of his slaves, with whom he removes all of her teeth, and then drills into her skull, sucking her brains out through a straw. Apparently upset at this, Sardou and Ralphus kill him by luring him to him to a cage of enslaved women, who hungrily devour him due to their ravenous appetites. In celebration, the pair drink and play darts, using a slave's buttocks as a dartboard. Tom phones the police, but only a corrupt officer, Sergeant Tucci, turns up, who asks for $10,000 in exchange for his help. Sardou threatens Natasha by murdering three girls via various tortures, including stretching, flogging and decapitation, and finally having feet chainsawed off, which finally convinces her to submit. Tom and Tucci arrive at the theatre after finding out that Natasha will perform from a local newspaper, but she appears to be there willingly by her own word. It's revealed that she's been brainwashed, but Tucci is unconvinced anyway and returns later, holding Sardou at gunpoint. Unfortunately, Sardou manages to bribe him to look the other way, and he returns to Tom with some fake bad news. The next day, Sardou opens a new performance, with Natasha dancing in a wild frenzy, with Creasy tied up on stage. Natasha is fully in a trance at this point, and dances increasingly violently, and Creasy ends up being kicked to death by her. Tom and Tucci, who has decided to ultimately betray Sardou anyway, break into the theatre and rescue Natasha from her captivity, and arrest Sardou, who's attempting to have sex with Creasy's corpse. In his greed to get Sardou's money, Tucci is eaten by the caged women, and during their escape, Natasha is still too brainwashed and bludgeons Tom to death with a sledgehammer. She runs back into the theatre to join the now-escaped and rampant caged women, who slaughtered everyone, including Ralphus and Sardou. As the film ends, one of the crazed women bites into a sandwich containing a severed penis. So greasy. Look on in awe at a man who has turned all his fantasies into realities. Not really. One still escapes you. Success in the theatre. And that is about to occur. My new show will receive critical acclaim. You haven't the talent to create anything but garbage. A ballet is forming in my mind. It will combine two art forms. Sadism and dance, as the public cannot digest eroticism alone. But to display sadism and discipline in its purest form would only lead to imprisonment. But by simply disguising it with, with a story, a, a minimal plot and, and a score, <laughs> will result in my being hailed as a, as a creative genius. Kill me. Kill me! Oh no, my friend. Thank <laughs> you.
you're going to be front row center in my triumph. After all, what good is the show without the critic? When you finished your ride, Ralphus, put it to work in the toilet. Her mouth will make an interesting urinal. <laughs> Probably one of the more infamous and lasting cult films to come from trauma films, Bloodsucking Freaks is a bizarre exercise in bloodshed and mutilation, directed by Joel M. Reed. Telling the tale of the ridiculously theatrical Sardew, who indulges in white slavery, but mainly struggles to get his dramatic theatre of the macabre running, in which he actually murders people on stage to a disgusted but amused audience, who have no idea that the proceedings are unsimulated. Being from Troma, it's hard to take these sorts of films seriously at the best of times. But this example is particularly outrageous and hammy, so much so that any malicious feeling or mean-spiritedness is actually kind of absent. Joel M. Reed originally wasn't attached to the production, himself wanting to produce a film based on another script he'd acquired concerning a rock star who's stalked by a psychotic teenage girl. When the money to produce that film, though, failed to materialise, Reed decided to make Bloodsucking Freaks in order to raise the required funds. Written under the original title, Sardu, Master of the Screaming Virgins, the script was written in just 24 hours, inspired by an S&M ballet company that Reed had seen previously. He also added in the explicit torture sequences, which were inspired by the Canadian Nazi exploitation film Ilsa Shewolf of the SS, as well as its sequel, Ilsa, Harem Keeper of the Oil Shakes. Some of the characters, as well, were purposeful references to real people. Tom Maverick, the footballer, is a reference to quarterback Jonah Math, while Natasha Di Natalie is based on ballet dancer Natalia Makarova. Both of these celebrities were popular at the time of the film. Creasy Silo is also based on the real theatre critic Clive Barnes. The plot of real murders being staged as a magic show is, of course, not necessarily unique. Goremeister Herschel Gordon Lewis had already released 1970's Wizard of Gore, which has the same sort of storyline as well as the same over-the-top qualities. The film was shot mostly at night between the hours of 12am and 6am on a small set in New York. The plot, however, is pretty threadbare and seemingly just an excuse to tie multiple torture scenes together, and even then rather flimsily. You do get a true catalogue of depravity, though. Not too often does one film contain this much. We have fingers being crushed, heads being squeezed until the skull breaks, teeth removal, brains drilled into and sucked out with straws, fingers chopped off and used as gambling chips, asses used as dartboards, women stretched out on racks, guillotined heads, which are subsequently fucked by a midget, feet chainsawed off, sledgehammer bludgeonings, a whole manner of cannibalism, rubbing bloody organs over naked bodies, and there's also a touch of necrophilia too. It's basically a case of, if you can think of it, it's probably featured in this film. That's not to say, however, that the effects are massively convincing. They're on the beast in heat kind of level, where it's just a little bit amateur, but still enough to elicit a squirm every now and again. The infamous brain-sucking sequence was achieved using oatmeal and fake blood. Not only that, but the performances of the cast are also incredibly camp in the same way as Herschel Gordon Lewis's films were. 
It's really hard to take the apparent misogyny seriously when you've got lines like Ralphus, put her to work in the toilets, her mouth will make an interesting urinal. There's something here to offend everybody, and it's thankfully not too taxing on the brain, unlike one of the many victims in this gore-fest. In terms of the misogyny, though, women are frequently displayed nude, and either humiliating or painful-slash-lethal situations, and not much else, really. But because it is so frequent, the nudity included, which you become blind to after a while, the effect lessens as the film goes on, which accounts for the increasingly perverse tortures so that the film is actually worth continuing. Notably, director Oliver Stone, who's famous for 1986's Platoon and 1991's JFK, was actually a fan of Reed's and frequently visited the set of Bloodsucking Freaks to check out what was going on. A big part of the film's campy tone comes from the hyperbolic performance of its leading man, Sardu, which is performed by English actor Seamus O'Brien, who portrays quite a perverse combination of Ming the Merciless and Gene Wilder's Willy Wonka, both being extremely depraved but deeply amused and excited by it all. O'Brien expressed an interest in the occult in his personal life, as well as a theatrical performance in general, and he'd made some minor appearances in both plays and comedy shows. His short stint on films, which included this film and one other, 1975's The Happy Hooker, was cut even shorter when he was murdered in New York when a burglar broke into his apartment. He suffered multiple stab wounds and died from his injuries in May of 1977, aged just 44. Viju Krem, who played the brainwashed Natasha, equally didn't do many other works, mostly appearing in obscure softcore pornography. And like O'Brien, she also tragically met an early end in 1983, being shot to death in a hunting accident in Pennsylvania. One of the more familiar faces, though, is Niles McMaster, who plays the footballer Tom Maverick. He had a small role in Alfred Soule's slasher film Alice Sweet Alice, which made it onto the nasties list under its communion title. Alfonso de Noble, who played the Middle Eastern slave trader, also joined McMaster in Alice Sweet Alice as the sinister obese man Mr Alfonso, as well as starring in Reed's later film, Night of the Zombies. Another recognisable face is that of Alan DeLay, who played Creasy Silo. He'd go on to portray the judge in Amityville 2 The Possession, as well as a very iconic role as the dodgy Duke Domestic in the Christmas movie Trading Places with Eddie Murphy and Dan Aykroyd. The unforgettable character of Ralphus is played by Louis de Jesus, who had starred in multiple pornographic roles around the 70s, one amusingly titled The Anal Dwarf. Director Joel Reed had met him while watching one of these films being shot, and bemusingly said that he was not all short in all departments. Regardless, de Jesus went to move on to mainstream roles and managed to get a role as an Ewok in the Star Wars film Return of the Jedi but he sadly passed away in 1988 at the young age of 36 from a heart attack. One of Sardu's assistants, the straight-haired one, was played by Ellen Faison, whose only other credit of note was as model Melinda in Frank Agrama's video nasty Dawn of the Mummy. Now, director Joel M. Reed had previously directed the anthology film Bloodbath earlier in 1976, and he'd go on to direct a rather tame zombie effort, uh, Night of the Zombies in 1981. Apart from this, he's made cameo appearances in the aforementioned Night of the Zombies, as well as the films I Spill Your Guts, Trashtastic, and 2015's The Fappening. But he does seem to have got into trouble fairly recently, according to my research. He was arrested on New Year's Day of 2015 for an alleged sexual assault. 
I'm not exactly sure how this turned out as well, because I can't find any details of the case's resolution anywhere on the internet. Composer Michael Saul also worked on Reed's previous effort, Bloodbath, while Ron Dorfman, the cinematographer on most of Reed's work, went to work exclusively later in pornography. Editor Joel R. Herson only worked on one other film, an obscure TV movie called Johnny Goes Home, while the other editor, Victor Konevsky, equally went on to have a quite a small career in TV movies. The film's special effects were done by Bob Obradovich in his only horror film capacity. The rest of his copybook was taken with, you guessed it, multiple TV movies. Originally titled as The Incredible Torture Show on its theatrical run, presumably to take advantage of the juvenile acronym of TITS, the film was little seen until Troma Entertainment acquired it and retitled the film Bloodsucking Freaks for a wider release in 1981. The film reportedly caused a lot of controversy across the world, enough in America to warrant several protests from the Women Against Pornography group who criticised it for its brutal misogyny towards women. It wasn't helped by the fact that the MPAA demanded cuts to the print, and Troma ignored them, slapping a phony R rating onto it and making out that the film was censored. After multiple complaints, the MPAA discovered the ruse and sued Troma for the trick, relinquishing the R rating entirely and effectively outlawing the film. It did receive a VHS release, though, from Vestron Video in 1984, but it was exclusive to the US, so only hardened collectors would have been able to see this movie in the aftermath of the Video Nasty scandal. Today, of course, the film is available in the UK on Blu-ray and DVD from 88 Films, passed uncut in 2014, almost 40 years after the original release. And that was Bloodsucking Freaks. So now let's go on to our next scuzzy slimy picture, 1972's Last House on Dead End Street. Terence Hawkins, recently released from prison on drug-dealing charges, plans a violent revenge on society. Scouting out an abandoned building, he decides to use the place to make films. He visits a few associates to aid him with this. Ken, a psychotic pervert who was caught having sex with a cow in an abattoir. Two prostitutes, Patricia and Kathy. And Bill, a struggling filmmaker. Meanwhile, a producer of porn, Steve, is unhappy with his filmmaker, Jim, whose pornography has lessened in quality and is simply not selling. Terry and his group make their first film by strangling a blind man that they've lured to the house under false pretenses. 
Steve is impressed with the footage, but Terry is unhappy with Jim, who was reportedly taking credit for the work. Terry goes to his house and meets Jim's lascivious wife, Nancy, whom he sleeps with, after which he reveals that the killing on the camera was real. Explaining that he's angry with them for trying to steal his work, Terry rapes Nancy and implores her to tell her husband that Terry will come for him. Terry eventually lures Steve, Jim and Nancy to the house, as well as an actress called Susie, and holds them hostage. They brand Susie on the chest before slitting her throat, killing her. The next day, they force Jim to direct a movie outside the building, before attacking him and slicing his chest open with a cleaver, and eventually beating him to death. They then strap Nancy to a gurney and slice into her face with a scalpel, before amputating her legs. She falls unconscious due to the pain, and wakes up to find more of her limbs hacked off. Ken then graphically disembowels her, ripping the entirety of her intestines out. Steve is forced to fillate Patricia, who has a small goat's hoof sticking out of her jeans, before Terry drills him through the eye, killing him. The crew walk away, heading off into the light satisfied at their success, while a voiceover narrates that all of them were apprehended and are now incarcerated for their crimes. Kenneth Hardy, Catherine Hughes, Patricia Kuhn, and William Drexel were all later apprehended and are now serving a 999-year sentence in a state penitentiary. Much debated about, frequently thrown into discussions about snuff films, and covered in a pall of mystery and ambiguity, Last House on Dead End Street is a 1977 dark horror film with elements of splatter and serial killer films. It has the same kind of notoriety that plagued the 1976 video Nasty Snuff, directed by Michael and Roberta Findlay, with frequent sources claiming its authenticity as a true snuff film. Very roughly produced and shot, the film tells the narrative of convict Terence Hawkins who decides to make snuff films in an apparent revenge against the society that has wronged him. After finding some initial success, he targets the very people that he's brokered a deal with and subjects them to brutal, torturous deaths and assaults before being caught by the authorities. Now, the origins of the film were shrouded in mystery for decades until the director of the picture, Roger Watkins, behind the pseudonym of Victor Janos, came forward in 2000 to claim responsibility for the film. So it's now known that filming had started under the tentative title of At the Hour of Death, and it wrapped completely in 1972, with the majority of filming taking place in the old main building in Oneonta, New York. Watkins claims that all of the actors were current or past students of the State University of New York, including himself. The blind man who strangled earlier in the film was actually played by the group's university teacher, Professor of Film Paul Jensen, who received the 2003 SUNI Chancellor's Award for Excellence in Teaching. Now, The film's budget was reportedly only $3,000 in total, but only $800 was used on the film. Watkins himself admitted that he spent the majority, roughly $2,200, on drugs, specifically amphetamines which he was having addiction problems with. 
There was no real working script, so most of the dialogue was ad-libbed, apparently, while the film's soundtrack was composed mostly from stock pieces from an editing house in New York City. And that's really all the information that anyone has about the film. It's an incredibly obscure piece in terms of the making of it. Apparently, after principal photography had completed in 1972, the film was cut together as a three-hour movie under the title The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell and released in very limited releases in Chicago and New York theatres. Apparently, the film caused outrage and riots, culminating in an arson attack on a theatre in Chicago. The following year, the film had another minor release under the title The Fun House, but it wasn't so minor in terms of the version of the film. It was heavily edited, cutting the film down to a mere 78 minutes. The distributor also tacked on a voiceover at the end, stating that the antagonists were caught and arrested, which annoyed Watkins immensely, stating that it ruined the entire film. The film then languished for a long time, as Watkins was sued by one of the actresses in the film, who was afraid that her nude scene would deprive her of a healthy Broadway career. After the case was settled, the film was eventually picked up for distribution, unbeknownst to Watkins, and retitled Last House on Dead End Street. It started to gain traction and became a popular choice at drive-ins and grindhouse theatres. The vast amount of pseudonyms, though, and the lack of information about the picture in general, fostered the rumours that it may have contained genuine snuff footage, something which even the distributors were not above fanning the flames themselves. Unfortunately, the 78 minutes version is the only available version today. The mythical three-hour-long cut is reportedly either lost entirely or hidden in a processing lab somewhere with no hope of discovery, especially in the wake of Roger Watkins' death in March of 2007. The film is certainly grimy. Even today's print shows an unprecedented amount of dirt and scuzziness that really helps bring its queasy atmosphere to rise to boiling point. In a Texas chainsaw kind of way, the first half of the film is mostly filler and tedium, but as the halfway point hits, a real sense of nightmare and madness pervades the screen, unrelenting even as its characters suffer unspeakable horrors. In terms of gore, the majority of the deaths in the film are not especially graphic, with the exception of Nancy's death, which is both sickening and protracted beyond belief. The fuzzy nature of the film stock adds to this dirty, foul edge to the filmmaking, and it really enhances the idea that this could be a snuff movie. Even in the DVD era, this VHS-ness, if you will, is still evident on the picture, which can't be said for most horror films of this era, which are usually cleaned up to some degree. The mean-spiritedness of proceedings, especially in regards to the film's pornographic-making characters, it seems to have some sort of subtext which is attacking the makers of exploitation films in general. The plot of snuff films seems to suggest that eventually, titillation from pornography and excitement from cheap thrills will not be enough, and producers will literally have to sacrifice themselves to give their audience the blood and voyeuristic carnage that they so desire. Even the way that Terry is portrayed in a bit of a Manson-esque kind of madness, with religiously fanatic followers, it seems to indicate that there's a kind of cult-like structure to people who like deprived entertainment. Still, the fabled three-hour cut would probably be able to unearth a little bit more of this subtext, so for now, the 78-minute version only has smatterings of this here and there. Watkins not only directed and starred in the film, he also produced it, edited it, and also operated the camera at various times, using the pseudonyms in the credits to cover this fact up. 
Ken Fisher, who played the psychotic Ken, was the principal camera operator and cinematographer, while the special effects were devised by Kevin Heatley in his only cinematic role. The camera used in certain scenes, namely the 8mm one, was given personally to Watkins by filmmaker and theatre director Otto Preminger. None of the actors really portrayed anyone else in any other film, bar Watkins, adding to the already thriving rumours that the film was a snuff film. Now Watkins had started making films from the age of 10, and he attended Liberal Arts College in order to learn his craft, which included many shorts starring his class comrades. After Last House on Dead End Street, he went on to make a series of stylized pornographic films, with 1983's Corruption standing out. He also made a thriller film called Shadows of the Mind in 1980, but he subsequently disowned it and put a pseudonym of his on it. He eventually, though, passed away in New York in 2007 at the age of 58. Now, the releases on VHS are probably even more interesting. Because of its myth and obscurity, Sun Video in America had released four different versions of the film all at once during 1981. Two of them were under the Last House on Dead End Street title, and they were censored. Another one with the same title, though, was uncut. And there was another cut version under the title The Fun House, with an additional voiceover at the end of the film. These VHS tapes were distributed in a very underground way. Even the artwork had no synopsis on the back and a very plain cover, almost as though to avoid suspicion. It's now known that these tapes, possibly bootlegs, were even distributed in the UK, and never on the video shelves. And it's now theorised that when the government put the title The Fun House on the Video Nasties list, they actually meant Last House on Dead End Street, rather than the Toby Hooper film which ended up being seized. Because the film was being distributed in such a cloak-and-dagger way, this film was never seized, and basically another film with the same title took the hit instead. Not only is this probable, it's highly likely once one watches the Toby Hooper film, which is tame to say the least. It was dropped from the nasties since it had an uncut cinema release and it had no censorship issues, simply because it's not truly nasty. Last House on Dead End Street, however, is a perfect candidate for video nastydom. It has graphic gratuitous scenes of murder, disembowelment, torture, rape, and it even has a scene in which a cow is slaughtered for real in an abattoir. If it was more readily available on the shelves, it would have been seized, without question. The film was passed uncut in the UK, though, in 2004 by Tartan Video, in a special two-disc version, so it is now available on DVD in both the UK as well as in the US. And that was Last House on Dead End Street, and it's the final film for this week's show, guys. Thanks very much for everyone who's listened. I do hope you've enjoyed the sound of my voice in your ears, you unlucky sods.
So next week, we've got another batch of contentious carnage to send directly to your eardrums, and it's something a little different than usual, but still nasty all the same. Well, at least according to the Director of Public Prosecutions. It's black exploitation films next week. We're covering two films that feature two strong, independent black women who don't need no men. 1973's Coffee by black exploitation veteran Jack Hill, and 1974's TNT Jackson, which is directed by Sirio H. Santiago. Now, both of these directors may sound familiar to Video Nasty devotees. Jack Hill directed Foxy Brown, while Sirio H. Santiago directed Naked Fist, which is also known as Firecracker. Now, both of the aforementioned films were listed on the DPP's Section 3 Video Nasties list, so tune in next week to find out if these new examples are just as depraved. Now, if you've got any feedback, written or spoken, either about the films that I'm covering, the job that I'm doing, or even just to say that I'm annoying, please do send in anything you have. You can reach me on Twitter and Facebook, or email me at nastypastypodcast at gmail.com. Until next week, though, take care, everybody, and I'll speak to you all soon. Bye! Bye, 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 bye!